I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcasts. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Yonit, and happy Independence Day. Thank you. Because today's the day, I think. Indeed, the day we're recording. Happy birthdays to the most um, interesting country on earth. I think we can agree. Like, if ever. 74 years 74 today. And you alive don't look and a day. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, festive mood where you are? Well, you know, it, first of all, uh, yes, always on Independence Day. I, y- you uh, know this very well that. In this country, uh, Memorial Day is immediately followed by Independence Day, right? It's a decision made by the Ben-Gurion government to remind us that independence comes at a price. So you always have to shift gears very quickly. It's this like 24 hours in which, you know, Israel is mourning and then at the eve of Independence Day kind of has to turn on the uh, festivities. So it's always a little bit sort of strange that entrance into uh, celebration mode. But today we're already in the deep end of Independence Day. Yes, definitely. But, but uh, that transition, it, it, it's hard for the country, but you you are at the tip of that sphere, <laughs> right? Because you are the one who's on TV and has to pivot people out of what I picture, so- somber sort of black border around the screen, as it were, metaphorically, and then suddenly pivot into streamers and blowing, putting on your party hat. I don't know how you pull that off <laughs> in TV terms. Every year it seems like, it? it seems to me like this moment that anyone coming from outside Israel would never understand because it all kind of uh, comes together in one hour, 7 p.m. when the newscast uh, has to be early because the ceremony of Independence Day is at 8 o'clock and it's sort of primetime television, like the Super Bowl in the United States. Everyone watches it, by the way, a ceremony that has not changed even a bit, I think, since I was a child, but everyone watches it. So you kind of have to shift at 7 p.m. It's still this sort of morning Memorial Day newscast. And then as you head up to eight o'clock, you kind of have to change the mood. It's a very strange uh, feeling. I've been doing this, as you know, for 19 years. Never stops being that that strange uh, uh, situation. But it's, it's also, you know, quintessentially Israeli, right? The way in which you go from this sort of, I don't know what I want to say, uh, manic depressive, but sort of depressed and mourned state to this very happy uh, celebratory mood. I've got to say, not just quintessentially Israeli, quintessentially Jewish, because all <laughs> of our things are like that. You think of a Jewish wedding where we break the glass to remember the destruction of the temple. We always do put together. We've just had Pesach only a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks back, and there again you have the bitterness of tears along with the celebration of freedom. That's a, I think Ben Gurion was onto something, the idea that there should be, if there's silver lining, there has to be a bit of cloud and mm-hmm. you get both. I mean, what's hard though is to, you, you can have that theoretically, but really hard for all of you to have to actually pull off that sort of pivot emotionally, yeah. this slightly bipolar shift, especially for you having to do facial gymnastics on TV <laughs> and go mm-hmm. and change your demeanor. That, that's pretty so accurate. Facial gymnastics is pretty accurate. And you have children walking around already in like, you know, the evening, the early evening of the eve of Independence Day with the little flags. And they're asking, like, can we already be enthusiastic about this or not yet? And everyone says, not yet, right? Only at eight o'clock when the ceremony begins. That is when sort of authorization, the country gives you this sort of authorization to to be happy. So what about during the Memorial Day itself? Um, which, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit today about Israel's fallen and conflict because we have a special guest in the form of Matty Friedman, who's written a book that touches on an incredible part of the Yom Kippur War story, uh, which is just one year short of 50 years ago. Um, so we're going to be talking about that. But, I, I, you know, from what I've read, there was a sort of bit of an unwanted twist yeah, in I the mean, memorial service this year. Sure. First of all, this is, you know, Memorial Day is this, as we say, the, on, on the secular and national Israeli calendar, the holiest of days, a, a day that is supposed to uh, transcend politics. When you're uh, talking about the dead soldiers and your heart co- goes out to the bereaved families and there are ceremonies, you know, all throughout the day. And this year there was uh, an event in which uh, Naftali Bennett spoke in front of a ceremony dedicated to those who were killed in terror attacks and he was uh, heckled. Uh, by some of the bereaved families and actually also by uh, a Netanyahu supporter who had nothing to do with the event, but came for the purpose of of uh, yelling at uh, Naftali Bennett. Jonathan, for five minutes and 32 seconds, he stood there 
and he took it. And they yelled at him the worst, really, of, of you know, uh, things. They told him he was a traitor and he was a con man and he's a liar and he should stop being prime minister. And again, he stood there because part of the people who were yelling were bereaved families. And in this country, definitely, like, they, they're treated, uh, they're revered. And so he took the whole thing, he listened, and he continued with his speech. Now, it really was um, quite a shocking event there were incidences over the years that one father would, would say something to the prime minister, then Netanyahu or would yell, but it, it lasted for 20 seconds. This was a very long uh, um, event here. And um, I think, but it, when we analyze it, sort of try and take a step back from this, it was pretty shocking, as I say, it wasn't a bad thing for him necessarily. Because I think that the people who are in the anti-Netanyahu block and need to be reminded of why Naftali Bennett is there suddenly got this sort of wake-up call and said, okay, maybe this is a, a good thing. When you add, and I'm sorry, I'm driving straight into politics here, but when you add to that the fact that we know now that uh, President Biden is going to be coming to Israel in June, uh, which is nothing more really than an attempt to help Bennett as much as possible, then then it's not a bad, and this, and this news, the news came out this week, it wasn't such a bad week for him, all things considered. And when you say he stood there, he he didn't say anything. He couldn't reply. The no. idea is just to stand. Just you can't there. talk over he took it. family. Right. I mean, there's such a delicate thing that you can or can't do. He sort of put his hand on his heart and said, I'm listening to you. I hear what you're saying. I can feel your pain. Again, five minutes, very long, five minutes and 32 long. seconds. And then he, he continued with his, with his speech. And, and have people given him credit for that and said, okay, this was quite prime ministerial to stand there and not get into the back, back and forth? Indeed, and his speeches, and again, these are days of ceremony. So he gave a few speeches and all of them had the same sort of bottom line, which was we need to unite, right? And when you put that uh, and juxtapose it in, uh, in front of what they said, then it looks, again, people really, uh, depends which people, because the people who are Netanyahu supporters uh, will dislike him no matter what. But a lot of other uh, people were quite impressed with what he was uh, with what he was doing. Uh, and all of this is relevant because, as we said uh, a few weeks back, the, the the clock is ticking in some ways on this coalition, and there will be people who did not think he would make it to uh, independent states, Yom Atzimut, and the, the the coalition would have unraveled by then. I know we we're going to be watching day in day out to see mm -hmm. if he manages to hold up. But look, that's another test uh, you've mentioned. Um, th there is a bigger test hanging over this um, government, and we've talked about it, you and I, over the weeks and months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that is how Israel threads the needle, or perhaps better, walks this high-wire position that it's tried to maintain of somehow uh, being with the West in solidarity with Ukraine without offending Russia, with whom Israel has an important but complicated relationship. I mean, I wonder if this week may look be, come to be seen as something of a turning point after Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, uh, remarked when challenged on Italian television about whether um, it was legitimate for Russia to claim that it was in the business of denazifying Ukraine. Was that legitimate, given that uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine, is himself Jewish? And uh, uh, Sergei Lavrov uh, replied, now rather famously, that he was not really impressed um, by arguments about the Jewishness of Zelensky. Lavrov said that, uh, look, when they say, how can Nazification exist if we're Jewish? In my opinion, Hitler also had Jewish origins. So it doesn't mean absolutely anything. For some time, we've heard from the Jewish people that the biggest anti-Semites were Jewish. So in case you missed that, <laughs> it does, in my opinion, Hitler, Adolf Hitler, also had Jewish origins, says Sergei Lavrov. I mean, it sounds to me a bit like a new low, Yoni. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone <laughs> thought it was a, a new moral low. And you heard the Israeli uh, government, specifically Foreign Minister Lapid, with a very harsh reaction, right, tweeting this is uh, both outrageous and lowest level of, of racism. Everyone sort of reacted the same way to this outrageous thing to say. It's not out of what he usually thinks, I think. And it probably just shows how this notion is actually quite popular among uh, some of the um, Russian elite. It's worrying in others, I think, in, for other reasons. But 
and really begs the question, Jonathan, does this change, and you kind of opened your remarks with this, does this change the way in which Israel is treating this conflict and is treating Ukraine? Connected or not, there are two very important uh, changes that happened over these uh, recent uh, couple of days. One is that uh, Israel is now sending bulletproof uh, vests to Ukraine and um, helmets, which Ukraine has been requesting for a very long time. And the other uh, shift is that Israel is allowing NATO countries to supply Ukraine with Israeli-made weapons. Now, whether this is connected or not, it just shows that there's a little bit of a shift in the Israeli position, finally, one must say, and that there are very, there's, there's a sort of skirmish of words between Israel and Russia. Where that leads us, we don't know yet. But it is important to point out that this week uh, Hamas sent a delegation to meet with Russian officials. This isn't the first time it's happening, but definitely Israel is keeping a kind of worried eye on, on that as well. I think the wording of Foreign Minister Lapid's was really interesting because mm-hmm. he said um, that, you know, Israel had been making every effort to have good relations with Russia. You know, this is this point we've been making. It's been trying to keep in with both. Mm-hmm. But he said there's a limit and this limit has been crossed this time. In other words... You've been pushing our patience, but this really is over the line. There will be people who think, well, what, the you know bombing of Mariupol or the killings of Bucha, that didn't cross the line? Right. I think it's worth unpacking for people who are not maybe steeped in this why this is such a, a taboo thing to say. Again, Lapid said the lowest level of racism against Jews is to blame Jews themselves for anti-Semitism. And that is the implication of this remark, is that somehow that the... Jews are implicated in their own slaughter. That is the uh, remark. And there was an interesting statement from Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Remembrance Center, saying, this turns the victims into criminals on the basis of promoting a completely unfounded claim. It's one of these sort of internet meme sort of level of authority claims that Hitler was of Jewish descent. So um, it's not just sort of, uh, you know, a shocking thing to say. There is a There is a sting to it, which is to somehow say, Look, the worst thing that ever happened to you, let's face it, that's on you um, by suggesting this ridiculous thing um, of Adolf Hitler. But yeah, it puts a more strain on what was already a very strained situation. And that movement you've described, been describing of, mm-hmm. you know, arms going to Ukraine, even if it wasn't caused by this, there will be political cover for Israel in moving over, off the fence and more and more onto one side. The other thing that um, has been making huge news around the world, unlike that example, was not something that directly spoke to uh, Jews. But I just thought we would it would be really interesting to speak about it just because of the different sort of approaches to this question. And that is abortion. Obviously, it all kicks off, has kicked off in the most enormous way with this leaked ruling from the majority on the United States Supreme Court that suggests there is a majority, at least five judges on the Supreme Court, ready to overturn Roe versus Wade, the judgment from 1973. Just realising 1973, bit of a theme for today's podcast. <laughs> it is, isn't but it? Roe, it is, it's odd. Roe v. Wade, anyway, passed in 73, uh, constitutionally enshrined a woman's right to an abortion. And it now seems that the Supreme Court is not just going to sort of temper that or restrict it, but positively overturn it and... Well, it just prompted a conversation, didn't it, with you and me, as we were sort of leading up to doing the podcast, we, about how other countries, including Israel, and how Jews really grapple with this question. And, and well, it's eye-opening. So why don't you tell us what you Yeah, thought? I mean, I thought we talked about this earlier this week because I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about what happens in Israel vis-a-vis this issue of abortions because the story itself is quintessentially Israeli. And also the bottom line is that we might be fast approaching a reality in which it will be far easier to obtain a legal abortion in Israel, legal and subsidized, I should say, than it is, than it will be in many parts of the United States. So bear with me a little bit, Jonathan, because I want to tell you what the situation here in Israel is. Now, in Israel, if a woman wants to terminate her pregnancy, she needs to appear in front of a panel or a committee, va'ada in Hebrew, uh, and there will be a doctor there and a social Uh, um, a social worker. And there are four conditions under which you can terminate a pregnancy. The woman needs to be under 18 or over 40. If the pregnancy is a result of rape, incest, or adultery, I will want to go back to that. It's important, the uh, last word I just said. A child, if it, it might suffer from birth defects, and if the pregnancy is liable to endanger the woman's life or cause emotional or physical damage 
to her. The result of all of the conditions I just said is that in the year 2020, for example, 99.6 of the requests for abortion were authorized. This leads you to understand that essentially and in practice, Israel is a country that is very liberal with allowing for abortions. But if, for example, you are a married woman who decides with her uh, husband, who she's in a loving relationship with, that you want to have to terminate a pregnancy, you will have to essentially either prove, right, that this causes you emotional or, or psychological damage or say that the baby isn't your husband's. Okay, so there have, and in statistics in Israel, 50% of the women who request an abortion say that this is a, a baby out of wedlock. What, what does this whole thing say to you, right? That the country is basically saying to you, wink, wink, we know what is going on here, right? If you say in front of the panel that you actually cheated on your husband and you, that's why you want to terminate the pregnancy, we'll allow it. You don't need to bring any sort of proof of this, right? But And this is how you will have your abortion. So you understand that the whole setup is that we all understand, the religious uh, institutions understand, the liberal institutions understand, that a woman has to go through this process, which is humiliating, by the way. But if she lies, there's no problem, right, to get this abortion and to have it subsidized and the state will take care of it. This is so Israeli, Jonathan. I mean, really, it's just... So what you're saying there is that Israelis are encouraged to be slightly economical, with the truth, as we Brits might put it. Is that a fair summary of the position? <laughs> what I'm saying is that, and I'm, I'm going to introduce, I can't believe that it's almost our 60th episode, and this is the first time I'm introducing this term to you, which is Israblof, of course, an amalgamation of two words, Israel and bluff, right? It means that, again, officially in this country, abortions are illegal, but... There are enough loopholes that the state encourages to allow for it to actually, in practice, be pretty easy to get an abortion. The only thing you need to do, not the only thing, of course, there are other options. I gave them here. But a, a very easy option for you would just to basically not tell the truth where everyone knows what is going on. Now, you ask, you, you say, why is this Israeli? Because the, it would make sense for you to say, wait, why don't you just legalize abortions? Like, why don't you make it simple and forget the committee and forget this whole thing where the woman has to go through? Because that is exactly the fine line Israel is walking between the rabbinical institution, between the liberal, you know, feminist uh, organizations. We all know what's going on here, but let's allow for it to, to just happen. I hope I've explained and it properly. You have I'm explained sure. it so well. I think it's, com it's completely fascinating because, yeah, it's, it's how the kind of church and state, as it were, synagogue and state separation has to function that right in that we've second time to mention David Ben-Gurion but the compromise that was brokered right at the beginning of the founding of the state was somehow to seed a, a, a sort of sphere of life marriage and mm -hmm. public transportation <laughs> yeah to the religious like that, authorities right. and yet make day-to-day -day life viable mm -hmm. for everyone else so it's really interesting that on that Vada on that committee there isn't a rabbi there um, but all. nevertheless, religious sort of sensibilities are kind of acknowledged by the fact that it's not on paper abortion on demand, although in effect what you've told us is that it kind of is abortion yep. on demand uh, all the time. The reason why it's extra interesting to me is that that's a case where the Israeli approach, uh, approach I would say, matches or matches up with the Jewish approach around the wider Jewish world, including the Jewish religious approach. I mean, it's interesting that rabbis in Israel will know of the system you're of course. describing. They'll know how it works and yet aren't objecting to it or mounting the kind of opposition that Christians have mounted in the United States. And why is that? And it's partly because there has been, I think, always this really pragmatic um, approach um, to abortion and to sort of all the, these sort of medical ethics questions more generally in Judaism. Um, and, you know, it's fascinating to me that, for example, as I understand it, um, Jewish law actually actively doesn't just allow for abortion in many cases, it actively requires it if the mother's life is in danger. And there will be orthodox and strictly orthodox Jews who will hold that position. And they wouldn't, you would not find many Christian counterparts of them who would say the same thing. Uh, and so, even people who are really pretty down-the-line conservative on a whole range of social questions, religious 
even ultra-religious Jews, they have this very pragmatic attitude uh, to the abortion question in which the mother's needs and mother's life comes mm -hmm. first. And that is grounded in in sort of halachic teaching. And that it go, you know, that's around the wider world to this fury, as, I, as I've read in the United States from, yes, the obvious uh, expected people, Jewish liberal groups, but also from Jewish religious voices in the United States and elsewhere, who are pretty appalled by this decision of the Supreme Court. You kind of answered the question before I asked it, because there is an interesting question here, which is this. Why has this issue of abortion never, in the history of Israel, why did it never become an explosive issue, not politically, not religious, not in a religious aspect, like it did in the United States? I mean, look, just, just think of the fact that both on the Zionist level and on the religious level, the dictum is clear, which is populate the country with as many Jews as possible. So everyone should be on this issue and talk about it and, and argue about it. And you kind of ask, why is it that it hasn't become this issue at all? Politically, no one's dealing with it. Religious aspects, not really. And you kind of answer that a little bit with what you said, because basically because Judaism, as you said, is more, I'll say, liberal towards this issue than other religions. But I think there's, other, there's something else going on here. And maybe it has to do with the fact that the argument between religion and state in this country, which exists all the time, is it deals a little bit more with what happens uh, in public and not in private. The arguments are about, well, we have public transportation while we are observing Sabbath, yes or no, right? But you're not dealing that much with what a person does in their own home. And it's part of that status quo or that sort of equilibrium that Ben-Gurion tried to uh, arrive at, which says, you got to let people live their lives, don't interfere too much, let's deal with what is happening uh, um, I think outside and in and public in Farhesia, as we say, which country is actually more religious, right? The United States, more devout, more observant. The United States, which has a separation between church and state, but you will never find a president that says there is say that he doesn't believe in God. We have in God we trust on their money. On the other hand, Israel, who again has a rabbinical institution, it's funded by the state. There is no separation of religion and state, and again, no public transportation, the Sabbath, etc. I don't know which country is actually more religious. So I was in the United States on the day that the Waco siege was broken in 1993. And I was there to interview the uh, Indian-born screenwriter and novelist Ruth Prawa Jabwala, mm -hmm. who wrote those Merchant Ivory films. And when I went to interview her in her New York apartment, on the TV was footage of the breaking of the siege at the Branch Davidian compound in Waco. And she looked at it and said, now bear in mind which part of the world she came from, she said, there is no more fundamentalist country on earth than the United States. And that came back to me a bit when I read this judgment of the Supreme Court, written incidentally by a man on the Supreme Court. That sentence came back to me. Uh, Israel finds a pragmatic way through. Uh, and the United States is going to take a different turn, it seems. Now on to our special guest on Unholy this week. We need to travel back in time almost 50 years to tell this story. Mati Friedman is a journalist, former reporter and editor for the Associated Press in Israel, best-selling and award-winning author. His new book, Who by Fire? Leonard Cohen in the Sinai, uh, dealing with Leonard Cohen's visit to Israel during the Yom Kippur War, uh, is uh, what we want to talk about today. And I also think the very first Canadian on Unholy. Could it be, Jonathan? Mati Friedman, that's a big thank you for honor. joining us. I think so. I think so. It, After almost a, a year. It's a big honor. Um, so welcome, Mati. I, I mean, the, the book is wonderful and beautifully told, beautifully written story, which I, you know, I want you to, to tell us. But b before we even get to that, I've always held the view that Leonard Cohen was basically the most Jewish uh, artist, I would say, of the 20th century, maybe ever. But his connection to Israel, I think, is much less well-known outside Israel, at any rate. The story you describe is set in the Yom Kippur War, 1973. But before we get to that, before war breaks out, what relationship did Leonard Cohen have with Israel? First of all, thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm happy to be your first Canadian. Um, <laughs> Canadian-Israeli. Canadian-Israeli. Yeah, I'm kind of shocked that you haven't had Canadians on before. It's kind of a... Pretty terrible. It's because Jonathan, from... he's kind of queasy about talking with people from the Dominion. He doesn't know. You know. That's right. We are exactly. Um, um, Leonard Cohen grows up in a very serious 
Jewish environment. He he's a child at a synagogue, which is a famous synagogue in Canada called Shara Shamaim in Montreal, which is really a great, a historically great Canadian Jewish institution, and and it and is to this day. And Cohen's grandfather was a president of this congregation. Cohen's great grandfather was a president of the congregation, and he grows up in a very rich Jewish environment. His um, maternal grandfather is quite a well-known scholar of Hebrew grammar, a very serious rabbi from Kovno in Lithuania. So he really grows up immersed in, in the Jewish tradition and never never rejects it. Right? One of the interesting things about Leonard Cohen is that his name remains Leonard Cohen throughout his career when in the 1960s that was you know, not a great name to have in showbiz and other other artists, of course, changed theirs. You know, Kirk Douglas being a good example. He was born Sir Danilovich and um, Bob Dylan is the most famous example. He was born Robert Zimmerman and Leonard Cohen remains Leonard Cohen. And I think it's because of where he came from. He came from a very unapologetically, deeply Jewish environment that remained with him throughout his life. But what about, so that's the Jewish connection, massive. But what about his tie to Israel that means that when war breaks out in 1973, he hears the call. I, I'm interested to know what his bond with Israel was before that moment. So Leonard Cohen is um, born in 1934. So he remembers a world in which there is no state of Israel and he's a child, but you know, conscious of the world around him in the 1940s when you know his family, like all other Jewish families, is deeply affected by, by events in Europe, even though by that time they're they're in, in Montreal. So he's aware of a world without Israel, and he remembers the founding of Israel in 1948 when he was 14 years old. But his take on Zionism in Israel is a bit complicated, and he even writes a poem about it in his first book of poetry. And this is in a section from that poem. It goes like this. Soldiers in close formation, paratroops in a white Tel Aviv street, who dares disdain an answer to the ovens? Any answer. I did not like to see the young men stunted in the Polish ghetto. Their curved backs were not beautiful. Forgive me. It gives me no pleasure to see them in uniform. I do not thrill to the sight of Jewish battalions. But there is only one choice between ghettos and battalions, between whips and the weariest patriotic arrogance. So he understands that there's a tough choice that we're going to have to make, but he doesn't love the choice that Zionism makes. And he doesn't, you know, get up waving the Israeli flag and sign up to fight in the Israeli army. And he actually has quite an ambiguous take on what having a Jewish state is going to require. And I think that the, you know, the Judaism that Leonard Cohen felt strongly about was very much the Judaism of, of the Bible and particularly the prophets, where we have this kind of pure moral message. And our, our, our job is to look up to heavens and try to you know, try to figure out what we're being told. And he has this great line at, at one point where he says, you know, he's addressing the Jewish community in Montreal, and he says, we've lost our ability to communicate with God. Once, he says, we had a vertical seizure. And what he's talking about is the revelation at Mount Sinai. And we all stood at the bottom of this, you know, desert mountain, and we had a, ver a vertical seizure. And he says, now we're all horizontalists. He says, we're knocking on our own doors, and we're surprised that no one's listening. So the Judaism that he wants to see is a is a, a religion of divine transcendence, and he thinks that that's mm -hmm. our job, and our job isn't to have an army and have battalions and you know have a state like everyone else. I think he thought a state like everyone else was a bit disappointing for Judaism, which was supposed to be something completely different. At the same time, he retains a deep connection, but he never he never rejects Israel, but he never completely embraces, um, you know, the the realities or the ugly realities of what's necessary to have a state in the real world. Which is interesting, as you also talk in the book about the fact that he called Israel his myth home, right? That exactly that's that point in which you can deal with it when it's a myth. But if you kind of encounter it as a reality, well, obviously it's a country and, and, and there are all kinds of sides to that. But nonetheless, he does take up, you know, spontaneously go from Greece to Israel. You incorporate his own manuscript that you uh, uncovered, which is quite remarkable, by the way. And it kind of explains how his terrible marriage led him to sort of take that as terrible as it was, it, but it led it to him to war. The amazing detail here is that he didn't take a guitar, which seems so strange because what then did he think he was going to be doing uh, in Israel during the Yom Kippur War? So that's one of the great questions of this story. What on earth was Leonard Cohen doing <laughs> at the edge of the Sinai front in the Yom Kippur War? And that was the question that occurred to me when I first heard this story, which was in 2009, 
when Cohen showed up here for a concert and Israelis went crazy for Cohen and I just couldn't quite figure out what was going on because I didn't know that Israelis had this deep connection with Cohen. And then I saw an article in one of the Israeli dailies in Yedi Otachronot about this tour and and it just seemed so weird. What on earth was he doing here? And that was one of the questions I was trying to answer when researching this book. And the big black hole at the center of this project initially was that I couldn't ask Cohen and I had no idea what he was doing here because I had memories of soldiers who'd seen him in Sinai and they had quite incredible descriptions of shows, but we didn't have his own explanation. We didn't have a window into his brain. And that changed. I was saved by Finding this manuscript, which you mentioned, which is a 45-page typewritten manuscript, very strange, very raw, uh, obscene at times, unpublished. It was clearly written in the immediate aftermath of the war and then shelved. And in the manuscript, we really see, at least to some extent, what was going on. And part of it was that um, his life was stuck. And he was on this Greek island called Hydra, and he was 39 years old, which is a prime age for a male crisis and he had a or maybe a female crisis as well and he had a a young child who was one year old and a relationship that was didn't seem to be going in the right direction at least according to his description and and at the same time his career was also stuck he'd already announced that year that he was retiring that he'd had enough of the music business and and he was a major star by that time I mean he played the biggest festivals and he had major hits and he had declared that he was leaving and part of what he was doing when he went off to the war was escaping his own internal crisis so our crisis here in Israel offered a way out of his own crisis which I think might have been a more you know burning crisis for Leonard Cohen so he escapes to the war and he comes i think not really knowing what he's going to do so initially i assumed that he came to perform for troops but there's actually no indication that he even knew about the israeli tradition of going off to the front to entertain troops and that's something that listeners might not be familiar with but in israel when a war breaks out your job as a performer is to take your guitar or whatever instrument you play and head off to the front which is in israel very close it doesn't involve traveling across the world so you can just drive to the front, you know, put your guitar mm-hmm. in the trunk, drive to the front, stop at the front, and play for the soldiers, and and you're expected to do that. But there's no indication that Cohen had any idea that that was the case. And he comes without a guitar, as you mentioned, and he seems to have intended to volunteer on a kibbutz. At least that's what he told oh. people that he had this idea that the men of the kibbutzim would be called up to fight, and that they would need people to pick the oranges or harvest the wheat, and um, and that he was gonna he was gonna do that, and he kind of bums around the country for a few days, and we have great descriptions of the people who he meets, and it's in this manuscript, which is really fabulous. It's really kind of a goldmine for anyone trying to mm-hmm. f- figure out this story. But then he's in a cafe in Tel Aviv, one of the two Bohemian cafes in all of Israel <laughs> in 1973. One was Cafe Kassit, and one was Cafe Pinati. And if you wanted to see everyone famous in Israel, basically you would go to one of those two places and they would all be there at some point during the day. And he's sitting at a table in the corner when a few other Israeli, or a few Israeli musicians, quite famous musicians, actually, although Cohen had no idea who they were, they recognize him. And they're about to go off to play for soldiers. And they walk over to his table. And after ascertaining that it is indeed Leonard Cohen, who is for some reason in Israel in the middle of the Yom Kippur War, they convince him to come to come with him, with them as they as they head off to entertain the troops and they all get into a car. It's a Ford Falcon belonging to a singer named Oshik Levy. And and off they go. And that's how this story starts. I mean, what I love about that is that people have when they hear the word sort of tour, they picture some huge um, RV and, you know, maybe private planes and flight cases. It's just him in a battered old car. And the pictures that appear in your book, which are, which are just stunning, are, it, it, there's no stage even. He's just sitting around, sitting maybe on a couple of ammunition you know, cases. And the people, the audience and him are just, you know, inches away from each other. There's no podium, there's no seats or anything. It's just him performing maybe sometimes for a few dozen guys you, for your reporting for this, you interviewed the people who heard him. Obviously, he was out of reach himself by then. But the, 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 the people who heard him, what impact did it have on them? And I've got, and you know, the book, the book is very evocative of the idea of singing, you know, under the stars in the Sinai, inches away. It's so magical. What? Just tell us what uh, legacy it left for the people who heard him. What made this concert tour, if we can call it a concert tour, and I, and I agree that the terminology evokes images that are completely irrelevant to this to this story, which is, you know, really him playing in the desert, often without an amp. Sometimes it's for a few dozen soldiers. We have accounts of him playing for three or four soldiers. Wow. 
So it's not really a concert tour, you know, if we're imagining a Led Zeppelin tour from the 70s or something like that. The the power of these concerts is 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 the fact that they're completely primal. That there's no ticket price. There's no money changing hands at all. And no one's selling records. And Cohen's not accompanied by an entourage. He has no one with him. He came by himself. There's no film crew. There's no lighting crew. There are no roadies. It's just Cohen with a guitar and these four Israeli musicians who are touring with him. And it's um, it's a matter of life and death, right? He's playing for people who could be dead within a few hours. And he knows it. Uh, he realizes that his songs might be the last thing these people hear. And everyone at the concert knows it. And that gives these concerts a power that very few rock concerts have ever had, right? So he's a guy who sings about life and death. He sings about, you know, the darkest and most important matters of our soul. And he's playing for people who are who are primed to receive that message because they're not in a dorm room and they're not stoned in a stadium or, or, or drunk. They're, you know, everyone's sober and they're considering, you know, their fate in the most basic way. And that I think is what makes the, the concert so powerful. And it's, it's pretty clear that people who saw Cohen in Sinai never, you know, never forgot that experience in part because it was so strange to see an international star of that stature in the middle of the Yom Kippur War. That was, you know, strange in itself. But part of it was the power of the performance and who he was and the way he managed to communicate with audiences beyond language. Many of the soldiers didn't speak English. And he knew he knew the Hebrew of the synagogue, but didn't know, you know, modern spoken Hebrew. Hebrew. And yet somehow there was a very deep kind of communication going on where the soldiers realized that he wasn't there to exploit them and he wasn't there on some kind of PR stunt. He was there with them in a very real way. And that, I think, makes this concert tour really one of the most, I mean, it's an incredible moment in Jewish history, certainly, but it's also maybe one of the strangest and most interesting moments in the history of rock and roll. There's so little documentation left of this, but I, I want to play um, this um, clip of what, obviously, musician and composer, very famous musician in Israel, Mati Kaspi, trying to translate to the soldiers what Leonard Cohen is saying. I mean, it's really, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. I just want to play a little bit of it. Will you translate for me, Marty? Will you tell him that, that, this, the, that these songs are too quiet for the desert? Yes. They belong in a room with a woman and something to drink. Where I hope that you'll all be very soon. This is incredible because he says these songs belong in a room with a woman and a drink. And Mati Kaspi doesn't exactly translate the same thing. And someone actually points this out to him. Um, right. he, he leaves out the woman. I think he thinks he's, he's, exactly that's, bit, that's what he leaves. This is a room with a few people. <laughs> and then one of the soldiers in the audience shouts out, "Targem biduk!" Translate <laughs> uh, precisely. <laughs> well, there's one more thing I want to play because we're going to play this. Uh, and this is the reporter who's uh, uh, interviewing Leonard Cohen uh, while he's here. A man from someone else who has a Leonard Cohen, who shares a mecha shketim shelo, koreim tagar gam ala milchamot. צנוע, שקט ונראה צעיר מחסיגילו, אמר לי כי רק כעת בראותו את המלחמה ותוצאותיה, הוא מבין עד כמה קשה ואולי אף בלתי אפשרי לתאר אותה באופן מדויק בשיר או פזמון. Again, not much survived. There aren't many recordings of this amazing tour, if we can call it that. And this is an actual recording in front of Israeli soldiers in the middle of the Yom Kippur War. Let's listen in. Oh, you are really such a pretty little one. I see you gone and change your name.
laugh about it all again. I mean, because the, 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 it isn't just an entertainment, is it? And it isn't just rock and roll. It's something really spiritual is going on there. And I mean, you tell us because the book is called Who By Fire. That's, I suppose, partly because the next album that Leonard Cohen makes includes the song Who By Fire, which is famously a play on the Yom Kippur liturgy, Who Will Live and Who Will Die, the Unatanitokhev prayer. Do, do, I mean, is it too neat to say that this that is directly the result of this experience that Leonard Cohen comes out of this? It's not just a sort of political Israel solidarity mission he's been on. Something very big and spiritual happens to him while he's there. Sure, I think it's not it's not a political solidarity tour, and you know, there's no attempt to bring press. There's no attempt to you know make any kind of international impression. In fact, as Yonit mentioned, there's no video of the tour at all and barely any photographs. The photographs that do exist, I had to f- find in you know, the private photo albums of soldiers. So it's not a PR stunt and it's really not about politics. And I don't think Leonard Cohen interacted with this place on the political level. This was a very deep act of Jewish identification. I'm not sure he even knew exactly to explain it. He just knew that he had to be here. And we have this idea in Judaism that you don't stand idly by your brother's blood. And I think he felt that. And, you know, without even knowing exactly what he was going to do, without understanding Hebrew, without knowing much about Israel or about the complexities of this war, he just needed to be here. And and he came. And, you know, going back to that question about why he came, I think part of what he wanted was, was to be reborn. And he even gives us hints of that in his manuscript. He says that this, he's going to Israel, which he calls his myth home. And he says, this is a place where you, speaking to himself, this is a place where you can sing again. Because we know he's stuck. He, he's lost faith in his art and he's lost his direction. And he thinks that something will happen to him here that will restore his voice. And, you know, thinking about that idea of the vertical seizure, right? he has this idea that we're, you know, we're too horizontal. We just think about ourselves and each other and we don't look up and we're not looking for divine inspiration and we're superficial and we need to, we need to have some kind of vertical seizure. We need some kind of divine experience. We need a prophecy. We need, you know, something crazy to happen. And, and where did the vertical seizure happen? What, what's he referring to? He's, he, to? he's referring to this communal religious experience that happened at Mount Sinai, right? That's the vertical seizure that happens, you know, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. And the Jews have a direct communication with God and the Jewish religion comes in large part from that communication. And where does he go looking for his own vertical seizure? He goes to Sinai, right? His personal seizure is going to happen in Sinai. And in fact, this entire story plays out, you know, within 50 miles or so of Mount Sinai. <laughs> and it's one of those parts of the story that you couldn't make up if it was fiction, because it would just seem too ridiculous. And yet, it's actually how it happened. Is there evidence to suggest that there was a kind of disenchantment that Leonard Cohen experienced, that in, you know, 1961, when you wrote that, read that poem to us about his feeling about patriotism in Israel, that by the time he's actually seen it, a decade plus later, the myth home has on some level disappointed him. Is there anything in that? I think there's a lot in that. And I think that you know, the idea that Israel is a myth home is a problematic idea that a lot of people have. And it doesn't, it can't survive more than a few days in the actual country. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because it's just not a myth. It's a real place. And you're going to have to deal with a real place and all of its beauty and ugliness. And we have all of it like any other country. And and certainly in a war, those characteristics are, you know, are more extreme. So, you know, there are many sounds strange, but there are many beautiful mm-hmm. parts of a war. And Cohen talks about it, you know, how everyone is, he says, you know, after the war, he says, no, no one was goofing off. Every gesture had significance. People were sacrificing everything for each other. And, and there's a beauty in that. And at the same time, of course, you see the worst of, of what humanity can offer. And I do think that there's a breaking point. He, he has a breaking point, which we can identify. So he comes into the war and he's talking about helping his brothers fight. And he asks the Israeli musicians who are traveling with him to call him by his Hebrew name, Eliezer Cohen. So he's he's gone native. Basically, he's gone native. He's wearing something that looks like a uniform, if you look at the photos, and sleeping on the ground with the soldiers and very much part of it. And then close to the end of the war, he describes a scene in this fascinating manuscript which takes place at an airbase in Sinai and a helicopter lands and the helicopter is full of wounded and dead soldiers. And these guys are really 
banged up and he he sees it and he sees them being unloaded from the helicopter and he he says this is what he writes in his manuscript he said you know these are these are young jews who are you know dead and dying and he's quite distraught and then someone comes up to him and says don't worry leonard these are egyptians and he's relieved and that's the moment that he catches himself and he says to himself he says i hate this relief this is blood on your hands so the idea that it's okay that these guys are from the other side, you know, that is anathema to Leonard Cohen, the artist. It's, you know, against everything he he believes. I think that that's the moment when he starts stepping back, when he kind of realizes he's gone too far into his own tribal identification. And I think if you caught Leonard Cohen and asked him, you know, in the Yom Kippur War, who is your enemy? He would never say the Egyptians. You know, he would, he would say, my enemy is inhumanity or my enemy is the war, he wasn't, you know, he couldn't be on one side of, of a war. And I think he he realized it. And I think that's quite disappointing to <laughs> some of us who'd like to have him, get him on our side. But of course, he was a much more complicated character than we'd like him to be. I think we can go on and on forever about this book uh, and about Leonard Cohen. There's definitely a lot more to say, but I do want to use the opportunity that you're here to talk about uh, a piece that you wrote in 2014 uh, after I'm like crashing us back into reality. Um, actually not because we were talking about the Yom Kippur War, but you wrote this after Operation Protective Edge in Gaza. And it really became this uh, seminal text that the um, the title is An Insider's Guide to the Most Important Story on Earth and a printed tablet and then a second installment in The Atlantic, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And you basically detailed why international reporters got in Israel so wrong and why. It's it's a fascinating piece. I would recommend reading it today as well. It's And this is my question to you. Has it in any way improved or are we still in the same situation? So those two essays were written after I'd spent about six years as a reporter and editor for the AP, which is the Associated Press. It's the big U.S. news agency, and it's one of the biggest news organizations in the world. And I'd gone in quite, you know, naive, I think, about the way, you know, the the international press world worked. I've always been an Israeli of left-leaning politics, uh, generally speaking, and I didn't expect to have any problems, and, and I did. And by the time I, I finished my time there, which was right at the end of 2011, I was quite cynical about it all. And what I'd seen in retrospect from 2022, things look a bit different than they did at the time. But what I'd, what I'd seen was a shift from classic journalism into a kind of activism. I think there was a real shift that happened at some point. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when, but a lot of journalists decided that they didn't want to explain complicated events on planet Earth. What they wanted to do was fight for justice. And that's when you get into a lot of trouble because what justice is, is complicated and justice for whom. And that was very much going on when I was at the AP and I saw decisions being made for reasons that were not journalistic, that were political. You know, once you're journalism is a form of activism, then you identify the bad guy in a story and your journalism becomes not about explaining the motivations of clashing actors. It becomes about uh, executing a character assassination of the people who are wrong and a kind of idealization of the people who you uh, who you think are right. This has been repeated numerous times outside of Israel. So at the time, I identified it as a problem specific to Israel, but it, it wasn't. We're, we were just an early symptom of something much broader that's happened in the media world and across, I would say, the world of not just the left, of course, a version of it has happened on the right as, as well. So, you know, you have this story that was really le- not about understanding Israel at all. It was about using Israel in a kind of morality play that was designed to press certain bus- buttons for Western readers and to set up Israel as a symbol of the qualities that people in the West or liberal people in the West, of which I am certainly one, um, are, are kind of taught to abhor, like nationalism, colonialism, racism, militarism and any complexity in the story had to be either played down to the extent possible or edited out entirely and that's what i wrote in those essays and they're quite detailed accounts of my of my experience and and looking back at at this from 2022 i think we can say two things one is that the problem has become worse where israel is concerned in part because the press world or the world of western discourse has become much more polarized and binary than it was when i wrote those essays in 2014 like 2014 from now seems like medieval times like this is pre-trump pre-fake news none of this pre-covid pre-covid i mean it might as well be yeah in yeah. the 12th century england or something but um um what what was what was happening was the beginning of this shift where which we can really see now which is that media coverage was becoming less a description 
than, than a kind of ideological fantasy. And that's true of the media on the left, and it's true of the media on the right. Whichever fantasy you prefer, you can find. But fewer and fewer journalists were interested or able to just dive into a very complicated story and try to try to explain it. And that has become worse. I mean, the the picture of Israel that you get in much of what used to be the mainstream press is, you know, almost a demonic, you know, portrait of a country whose actions cannot be explained. Um, you know, a country that's really driven by instincts that are that are malevolent. So it's not a small country trying to hack it in a very tough part of the world. Of course, you know, six million Jews in Israel in the Arab world, which is 300 million people. Israel is one fifth of 1% of the landmass of the Arab world. But the you know, the story as it's described is very much about an empowered majority oppressing a minority. And it's set up that way in order to reflect the Western world's concerns about itself. So in America, the concern is racism. In a place like the UK or France, it's a concern about colonialism. So it's kind of a projection of local concerns onto, onto a country that's made to serve a certain narrative role. And um, that's part of what's happened. And I think it's part of a broader breakdown of you know what used to be the mainstream press at the same time fewer and fewer people believe the press so the the portrait of israel has become more and more fictional and and more and more kind of unhinged as time has gone on but at the same time the number of people who believe what they read in the media has also decreased and i'm not saying that that's a good thing you know, i think it's actually a really bad thing and i'm not sure what we're supposed to do in a world where we can't trust any of the information but those two processes have gone on uh, parallel to each other and they're connected of course because the more the press becomes an ideological fantasy which we've seen with the israel story and with other stories the less credible the press is going to be and the more the journalists mm -hmm. are obviously activists um you know the more the average reader will be able to identify the, the, the copy as activism and the less they'll be inclined to to believe it we um dedicate a lot of time on this podcast to discuss uh, jewish diaspora and Israeli relations, the relationship, and, and obviously there's a, an Israeli and a diaspora Jew, and I'll call you half and half, although you've lived in Israel most of your life. We are talking uh, now um, in, on Independence Day, and it's our 74th year. I'm, I'm kind of wondering if there's something that you are concerned about, or let's say concerned and optimistic about uh, next, in, in, in this coming year. Well, it is Independence Day, and I, you know, I've been around Jerusalem today, and the, the parks have been full of people having barbecues, and there are a lot of flags around, and uh, the, the Air Force does a flyby over most of the country's major cities. So at 1130 today, you know, fighter jets and helicopters and all kinds of other military aircraft flew over, and there was some aeronautics uh, displays, and, and, and I, it made me think about that kind of tricky border between nationalism and patriotism, between kind of being pr proud of who you are, but not chauvinistic about other people. And Leonard Cohen has a great line. He says, which might surprise people, he says, only nationalism produces art. Whoa. So art can only, right. You, it's kind of surprising <laughs> if you think of Leonard Cohen as a John Lennon type character, but actually Leonard Cohen thought very little of the John Lennon approach, right, where there's no borders and no religions. And he has a quote at one point where he says, you know, I, you know, I, I would never write a song called Give Peace a Chance. I don't like those slogan writers, he said about John Lennon. So he had a very different approach. He, he thought that only a, a group of people speaking a language on a particular piece of land, sharing a culture, that was the only situation that was going to produce anything of artistic significance. And he came from a very unique corner of Canada, Montreal, which is also a very interesting, very rooted place. And he did not believe that we needed to seed all of our group characteristics and identity in pursuit of some generic, you know, global identity, which I think he thought was awful. And um, I was just thinking about that today, because often in Israel, we don't strike that balance, right? You know, we have exhibitions of um, extreme nationalistic chauvinism here as, you know, as everywhere, unfortunately, and it, and it seems to be, it seems to be growing. But on Independence Day, I think we do get the balance, right? Like just being around Jerusalem, seeing people just happy, you know, even the military flyover wasn't particularly military in its nature, right? There's no, it's not like a grim kind of belligerent thing. There's kids in the parks and they have flags and we're happy to be here and we're happy to be who we are. And that doesn't contradict being part of, you know, the world. And Zionism was always about being us in our country, but very much being a part of the human community. And, 
it's, it's a hard one to get right. And I think that, you know, on the other 364 days of the year, I have a lot to say about how we strike that balance. But Independence Day in Israel, I think, does get it right. So I'm going to allow myself some optimism today, if that's okay. That's okay. I did, there was a, did, Jonathan, did you notice that tone of condescending Jerusalemite to Tel Avivian talking about how Jerusalem was nice? And, Tel Aviv was nice in Independence Day as well, Mati. I'm just, <laughs> I just want to let you know. I, I, I soured the mood. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if listeners realize that you're actually a Jerusalemite who betrayed her, her city. I didn't betray. And- I, I <laughs> was forced to leave by the, the cool kids in my school. They were too cool. I had to move to a different city and start over. That's what I had to do. <laughs> now, play nicely, you two. Um, Matty, uh, the book is Who by Fire, um, all about Leonard Cohen's extraordinary uh, odyssey through the Sinai in the Yom Kippur War. Strongly recommended. It gets an unholy seal of recommendation. If there was an unholy book club, this would be one uh, of our recommended lists. Thanks so much for being with us on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Mati. So, Matty Friedman and Leonard Cohen, I personally could just keep on nerding out on that <laughs> oh, topic. Oh, for sure. <laughs> the finest, tiniest detail to me is completely riveting. I hope people go back to the music after um, reading the book and hearing this story. The music is wonderful and rendered all the more sublime by hearing some of the kind of backstory that we got from Matty and, and, and that brilliant conversation. Well, we and we have to uh, completely. First of all, I completely agree with you, and secondly, I think we have to move on to uh, mention chutzpah. We of the week. do, um, we do. Shall I? Shall I go first with a chutzpah nomination? Knock because, yourself out, Jonathan. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> um, it is to take us back a little bit to our to discussion about the leaked uh, Supreme Court ruling drafted uh, by Justice uh, Samuel Alito, and. It's significant for in terms of sheer chutzpah because, talking of geeking out, the legal community is geeked out on this leaked draft ruling. They've never had one before to feast on. But you notice the footnotes are always very telling in, in um, jurists' writings. And people have looked at the footnotes and guess what? Name-checked almost among the very first, I think she's perhaps the second or third footnote, but, she, but she's name-checked twice, invoked in the cause of overturning a woman's right to choose, is one Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yep. <laughs> Samuel Alito prays in aid the, the words of Justice Ginsburg. She's there on page three in a footnote. She came comes straight after Larry Tribe, who is another liberal icon. It seems like some people have called him Samuel Trollito um, <laughs> because they think he trolls liberals. And I, I would normally be unsympathetic to that, but you think he's definitely playing a bit of a game here. It is chutzpah of the first order to try and say, look who's on my side on as I proceed to dismantle uh, abortion rights and women's rights, the great feminist Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I think for this draft ruling, a chutzpah award should be on its way to the Supreme Court and to the chambers of Judge Alito. So we're sending it right now. Sure, uh, I want to give the um, mention award of the week. I think for the first time, we're actually giving it to a country, not to a person. Oh. And even more surprising, which country? Which is Albania. Not your maybe immediate choice, but we are giving it uh, to uh, Albania because Tirana, the capital, decided to rename a street in the city and rename it uh, Free Ukraine. Now, that is only half of the story because this is the street uh, in which the Russian and Ukrainian embassies are located. Obviously, more important that the Russian embassy is located there. Uh, Mayor of Tirana said that the new address will basically mean that the Russians will have to work, live, and get their mail on the free Ukraine street address, which is nice, I think. A little bit of um, humor there, or, you know, dark humor. But anyway, I think that's why they deserve the mention. No, that is a very neat move um, by the Albanians. Uh, Tirana, you have the accolade of Mensch um, of the week. You didn't expect it. We nope. didn't expect it. There are always <laughs> Hey, twists. we have listeners in Albania, I'll have you know, because I look at the stats. So just uh, some respect. Mr. Friedman. Oh, I, I love hearing that. We have some listeners in some very unexpected places. So unexpected that some of them we don't reveal because we don't want to cause trouble for them. But we are delighted uh, how far flung some of our listeners are. And if you're listening in Albania, 
Greetings, the Mensch Award is yours. If you have enjoyed this edition of Unholy, you know what to do. Subscribe, review, rate, and generally tell your friends. Uh, our audience is growing, and that is thanks to all of you spreading the word. And we will thank Rom Atik, Omer Primat, and Irad Erschel for original music, and we will meet next week, Jonathan. Like it or not, that's what's going to happen. I do like it. See you then, Yoni. <laughs> See you.